Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer, dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now, with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guests today, that's right, I have two guests today, are husband and wife, Nathaniel Hoff and Jillian Spies of the band The Bergamot an American indie folk rock band based in Phoenix, Arizona. The band formed in 2009 when Nathaniel and Jillian were in college at Indiana University, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. After college, Hoff and Spies began touring America extensively, sharing their positive music and vibes with their fans. In 2012, the Bergamot won the Bud Light Battle of the Bands, and in 2017, they won Project Aloft Star Competition. Another tipping point came for the band when Rock Band, along with Reverb Nation and Firefly Music Festival, licensed the group's song, Forget About Tomorrow, for the video game, rock band rivals. Overnight, the band was on the front of YouTube gaming pages with people performing the band's music in the video game. It brought about a level of awareness we have never seen before in our music overnight, says Hoff. The Bergamot was becoming a household name. Through the years, they have opened up for artists such as All-American Rejects, Young the Giant, and Wiz Khalifa. The duo has performed in all 50 states, including Taste of Chicago and Bud Light's Port Paradise Music Festival, located in the Bahamas. And they have graced the pages of People Magazine, U.S. Weekly, BuzzFeed, Paste Magazine, 
Ear Milk, Icon Magazine, The Daily Record in the UK, The Daily Mirror in the UK, The Chicago Tribune, Brooklyn Vegan, Pancakes and Whiskey, WGN Chicago, CBS, and HGTV. The Bergamot's uplifting songs are powered by unbreakable harmonies with seamless songwriting adeptness that combines a story of both the joys and heartaches of life. The duo creates songs that are uplifting, catchy, and downright fun, and with performances that are high energy, infectious, and have turned first-time listeners into instant fans. It is my pleasure to welcome Nathaniel Hoff and Jillian Spies of the Bergamot. Hello, Jillian. Hello, Nathaniel. It's great to talk with you. It's so great to be with you today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks you for having bet. Us. You bet. It's really been looking forward to having you as guests on my show. You know, I have been listening to a good deal of your music. Uh, I love the vocal work and both the solo and harmony vocals and background vocals that you guys do. Uh, really enjoy your sound. Uh, you guys are labeled as a, an indie folk rock band. I have also seen in some of your press, you're being referred to as a power pop duo. Now, I believe many times these labels get applied to the work of musicians, primarily by journalists who might find words inadequate to fully describe music they hear, or by record label marketing to help the music consumer identify what they may think are musical styles they will like. My question for you guys is what do these labels mean to you and what musical elements do you believe are constituent to your music to warrant such labels if indeed the labels are accurate? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the interesting things about labels is that obviously being fully independent, we run our own record label. So we're involved with all aspects and elements of the distribution of the music. And so one of the things uh, in today's music marketplace that we're dealing with is the release of singles. So there's so many singles, you know, you're doing singles all the time. And so I think that in a day and age where albums were really kind of the focus of a musical concept, um, it was a little bit easier to apply a label because you're looking at kind of a body of work and you're almost taking the summation or the, or the average of the entire body, which could be eight or nine songs. And you're saying, okay, well, these songs are mostly folk pop or folk or alternative folk or alternative. But now that we're working with a distributor and every single that we release, they have us choose right away you know, you have your primary and then there's now they have a um, they'll have you choose two primary and then below the two primary, they might even have you choose two sub primary. So mm -hmm. you might say, hey, our primary on this single is alternative. Well, within the alternative space, they want to know, is it more folk alternative or is it more like pop alternative or rock alternative? And so I think that the, you know, 
it's interesting because and in going to the single part of why that makes it so complicated is that each single I think has its own kind of nuance right like if you broke down an album even a Radiohead album each song may have a little bit more of something going on that makes it a little bit more of a different genre than if you say you take the grand total of the record and say, oh, this is for sure an alternative record. You might listen to one of the songs with the acoustic guitar and look at it differently than a sequencer based song. So I think that a lot of the labels that happen are happening because we're putting singles out almost every month or at least twice every six months. And it's kind of trying to diagnose each single for what it is. And so a lot of times when you're running these, uh, there's all this energy around a single, you know, it kind of in that moment, that's kind of the, uh, the genre that's, that's taking over that single it doesn't mean that it's going to be what the next single is, or it doesn't even mean that it's perfectly reflective of what the album will ultimately be, but it is a snapshot in time. And so I think that those help people to understand you know, for playlist pushing and all that type of stuff, especially when you're dealing with distributors, they want to know where to push these playlists. And I have to admit, I'm not always 100% confident that is it singer songwriter? Is it alternative? Is it folk? You kind of have to break down the certain categories. And I think that that's where a lot of the, the different opinions come in because it's depending on the singer, depending on the cycle, it might be a more folky acoustic, or it might be maybe a more pop with like a lot more synthesizers. So, um, so I think that's kind of where it comes. And I think that's where the basis of it exists is just in helping to get those singles out. And um, we're working in, in marketplace. I think they say 40,000 songs a day come out on Spotify. So yeah. um, these little tags that you assign to a song, I think are really important, but at the same time, not important at all because the music is what's important. So it's, it's a journey and we've found our way amongst it. And we, um, but we think that it's important, obviously, especially as an indie band kind of making our way in the world to have some things that people can just look at and say, oh, I like this genre of music. I'll give this song a shot. Okay. Well, and I think you raise a really great point that, uh, that you know, is really a big picture item here. And that is the way that we consume music today is a whole lot different than it was 50 years ago or even 60 years ago. I re I, I'm old enough to remember the 1960s when I was, of course, I was very young, but I still had some, you know, cognizance about, about music. And I seem to remember in those early days, al albums, when they were put out by a pop artist or, or a rock artist, were gen generally just a collection of previously released singles. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until Brian Wilson, you know, started pushing the envelope in terms of production and, uh, and then the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper, you know, the idea of a concept album that all the songs would somehow be interrelated. Yeah. And so then the album kind of becomes that product. And, um, uh, you know, and, uh, and then we could go on with uh, Pink Floyd and so on and so forth and those ways through the 70s. That doesn't really exist anymore, does it? Because yeah. you're right with streaming and with Spotify, iTunes, all of that, you know, people now just pick the songs that they like and they don't necessarily listen to the body of work of an artist, which I think is a shame, yeah. uh, but only just pick the, the particular songs that they like. So you raise a really great point there that I think is a bigger sociological issue as well as musical one. 
So, yeah. so would it be fair, Jillian, I know you want to j- chime in and I'm going to let you, but I just want us to say one more thing. And then, so I think it would be fair to say that Bergamot is, uh, has a variety of styles yeah. under, under the umbrella of your work and that uh, it was, you might put out one particular style on one single at one time and a different at another, but go ahead, Jillian. Yeah, I was actually going to say two things. One, this brings up the point that recently happened with Adele's new album. I don't know if you saw that she specifically requested to Spotify that they not do the shuffle. So usually on albums, when you release it, Spotify would just jump to another song that's popular and just said, no, I won't release this with you unless you make it so that it goes one song into the next. So she's saying, hey, this is more of a concept album. And these songs are meant to be listened to in order that I place them. I think we're going to start seeing that more. And, you know, these these mega star artists, they're requesting these things, but it's trickling down to make it possible for, you know, indie artists so that that was taken off. They literally, I don't know if they're going to allow that for other people going forward. I didn't get to that point in discovery. I need to keep reading up on that, but hopefully that would be very interesting. I would be very excited if, Spotify and Apple said, hey, you know, we're not going to shuffle these. Of course, people are still going to go on and say, oh, I'm going on to Bergamot. I want to hear this one single. That's always been the case. Even when you were saying in the 60s, people, they would release, if, I have, if I'm remembering my history right, they would release like a, uh, it was just like a pr- one pressing of a song or on like a record. Do you, yeah, do you- you'd have 45s. Yeah. So like this has been going on forever. Now it's just right. easy. You can go on Spotify and Apple and say, I just want to listen right. to Burns. The Bergamot just dropped it. I want to hear that. But what I was going to say about the art particular, our genre, I think we really do. When we're writing the songs, we're storytellers. So ultimately we keep that folk word in there because folk to both of us is a story. You're going to listen to a song and it's got a whole piece. It's a concept. You're going to go somewhere. You're on a journey which is very different than necessarily pop songs or, you know, rock songs. You, they do sometimes take you on a journey a lot of times, but sometimes it's a rock song. It's just like four on the floor. It's a concept and it's like, boom, boom, boom. So I think we both always resonate with the folk, the songwriter, because that's, those are our roots. But then in, we just released a new single called Burns and that song, it takes you on a journey. There's definitely folk within the lyrics, but it, it is leaning more towards pop because there's more synth and more um, drum-based elements that are not live. They're mm-hmm. digital. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leans more into this pop, like foreign, you know, element. So I think we really do. Our spectrum for the Bergamot is between folk singer songwriter and pop with rock in between it's some somewhere in that and depending on what we release you'll hear more of those elements and then you know we just released uh we both love christmas so we just Mm -hmm. released a south shore christmas it's a live album that we did in 2019 with our full band saxophone chris brownlee jordan swartz and drew were on the bass cameron nagel on the drums and that to me is very jazzy that is probably the jazziest Mm. you'll hear us because we're taking our favorite christmas songs original Christmas song that we, and, and other songs, and we've got a saxophone, we've got a stand-up bass, and it, and we, we kind of become this very special for, uh, you know, one month, only a year, more of like indie jazz, folk, pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's well, fun. I have to tell you, I love that Christmas recording. Thank you. I've, I've listened to that probably more than anything else, and oh. I, and I, uh, 
you know, and actually I have recommended it to people who've asked me, say, what have you heard new that, you know, okay. Christmas? And I said, oh, you got to check out this group. I'm interviewing them in a couple oh. of weeks. They've got a Christmas album out that was recorded in 2019 and it's a live album and it's awesome. Thank so you. there's my take. Yes, I, I love I love the work you do. But it's interesting. A lot of the th thoughts that are coming to my mind uh, when you mentioned about Adele, uh, the idea, perhaps the uh, uh, audience that is using Spotify and iTunes is maturing mm -hmm. much in the same way that the rock audience in the 60s and 70s matured. And so we went from just singles to albums. Now we're going, we've got to hear the whole uh, the whole enchilada, so to speak, yeah. of, the, of the work. <laughs> that was yep. conceived at that point. And, uh, and I know too, I, I often look at that because I also hit from the uh, classical music side of the plate. And I, you know, always when I would teach my students about uh, symphonic works, for example, you know, he said, you have to listen to all four movements of the symphony because they're interrelated. I'm going to show you how they're interrelated, you know, through motivic, reasons or, or keys or whatnot, but the composer can so, conceive these four different ideas. They're kind of like chapters in a novel and you got to read the whole book to get the story, you yeah, know? Yeah. And yeah. I think songwriting, uh, particularly on an intelligent level that you guys are writing is eventually going to go that way uh, if it isn't already. Uh, and it's, I, there's a singer songwriter I interviewed and I'm, her name is escaping me now, but uh, she actually uh, had some classical background and we got into a whole discussion about her new album is actually being a song cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, she said, yes, that's the way I've conceived it, much in the same way that some of the uh, uh, early 19th uh, century uh, German leader uh, composers would write cycles of songs around a particular theme. Yeah. So that's that's interesting to hear you talk about that. That's really stimulated my thinking about how maybe things are changing. Well, anyway, let's uh, let's kind of move, keep going here. Uh, you're not a cover band, however, you do emulate sounds that are not unfamiliar. I mean that I find you know similar in other acts like like yours. So, what musical concept do you possess? Or who did or do you listen to? And how has that impacted you or informed what you do as songwriters and performers? Yeah, I think that the, um, well, the beautiful thing about music is that whether you're conscious of what it is that you're being influenced by or unconscious, the influence just comes through. And so I think that in the beginning, and I was kind of talking to some another songwriter about this recently is that in the beginning of any career, any musical career, it seems, you know, you listen to your favorite acts. And for me growing up, that would have been like Billy Joel and Bob Dylan and Pink Floyd. And, and, you know, you write your first song and it's, you know, maybe one chord off of wish you were here, you know, and the <laughs> melody is a couple notes, but it sounds kind of like something, you know, and then, but the idea is, is that when you're going through that journey, that, you kind of write a little bit and then you hear something a little different. And maybe that first song is only a couple variations off of a very familiar theme. And then the second song is a little bit more interesting. And so after years and years of that type of writing, I think you kind of explore into your own realm of writing. And, um, and so, you know, I'm listening to like a lot of like 
Mac DeMarco and uh, Tame Impala. I am a, do love a lot of classical music, Chopin. I'm, um, I'm Polish, that's my history. So I relate a lot with the story and the movements and the emotions. Um, but I think that all of that music does get intertwined into what we do. And I think that what's interesting about the music that we're creating is that we are able to interweave it with some of our influences in a way that's totally unique to us. So there are going to be elements that are familiar and that could be melodically that, you know, that there's something that feels kind of good or feels, you know, accessible about the way that we composed um, a song. But we're hoping that through our influences um, and the things that we listen to, that we're able to harness that from song to song in a way that makes people feel like, you know, like the best things that I've felt when I listen to music, it's like, hey, I feel like I know this and not because I actually do, but because it's hitting all those kind of familiar notes inside of me mm -hmm. that I like to have, you know, I like to have those feelings when I listen to music and whether it be intensely um, sad or intensely mm -hmm. happy. Um, so we're kind of, you know, looking at, and I think that another thing that we do really well is we in our live shows, we really integrate the divine feminine and the, and the divine masculine. Mm -hmm. And I think that in today's world, when it's all men versus women and women versus men, mm -hmm. and it needs to be this way, or it needs to be these people in charge. I think that um, a lot of that is silliness and that ultimately it's working together that makes us better. And I think that our documentary mm -hmm. that we filmed in 2016, we explored this concept that really through diversity, we are unified. And I think in music, that's true too. When you bring concepts of masculine and feminine together, you, you, you realize that there's something that transcends both. And that is what unity is. And that's what diversity is. And so in our music, we're trying to always integrate, how is it that we can work together, but yet maintain our own integrity, whether it be musically or with our vision or with our ideas. I think that a lot of it has to be um, negotiated and that's in the music, but also in, you know, in, <laughs> in the interviews real life. and in real life. So sure. I think that our music does um, an interesting job of approaching both of our voices, both of our talents mm -hmm. in a way that's different and unique and offers the listener something they maybe haven't quite experienced before, yet it is something that can be relatable, something that can be uh, tied back to some of those influences that I talked about. And, and, and yeah, something some, that's some unique about what you said. So we're, obviously we're very different people and that's why we work, we're yin and yang together. You know, he's very, uh, a great thinker and philosopher in these ways. And I'm more in the moment. And I'm, I also am uh, very much intellectual, but I like to be present, not overthinking the future. And so we actually work really well together because we're completely different. And we also grew up listening to completely different records. So I grew up listening to Motown, the Beatles, Joni Mitchell, Carol King, James Taylor. He, and I had never even heard of Pink Floyd when he told me in high school, cause we met when I was 15, he was 17. He told me, he's like, Hey, you know, have you heard of Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd? And I was like, oh no. I was like, who's Pink Floyd? I thought Pink Floyd was like a man. I thought it was one man. I didn't or like know. the classic Pink Floyd lyric, which one, who, which one's pink? I, yeah, I was like, who's pink? So we really, so, but he had never really listened to like Motown or, you know, Carol King or John Denver, these things I kind of 
hippie 70s meets early 60s, 50s. That's where I grew up listening to vinyls at my house in the basement, spinning vinyls. My, my mom and dad had a really big collection. So I was more pop. He was more rock and folk. And then we decided when we started writing our first song, I wrote in a pop structure where it's like, you know, you open it up, you can either open right in and then chorus or verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus out. You know, it's a very pop structure. He was writing in these really alternative structures where he'd throw interesting pre-courses in different areas. And, and so then when we came together, it was like this folk rock pop meeting. And then I really also appreciated the songwriter elements to the John Denver, the Carol King, the James Taylor, mm -hmm. I grew up listening to that stuff, Joni Mitchell. And so then it was like, okay, we blended on the songwriter element and then, but I was more pop, he was more rock. And, and so, classical as well. That was also, I yeah. studied a lot of class. I studied classical guitar in college. And so that was, you know, um, Baroque pop was the big thing, the big catchword <laughs> for us in the beginning, which sure. was heavily influenced <laughs> Uh, classical so it was like pop music with heavy, heavy influences of classical music um, and so that was kind of something that uh, I was into you know studying and I think that was a lot of the reason that I didn't believe too much in like the song structure it was kind of like you know um, folk shares that tradition where you know you don't actually have to have like an extended chorus with it Bob it could Dylan. just be like a couple words that were repeated throughout yeah. Um, over the same chord progression but it somehow felt like that was like chorusy enough to get you through the song because it was more about the story and so I think that um, you know the classical study that I had you know integrating that in as well a lot of the finger style um, uh, uh, classical guitar and then you know classical piano and stuff like that and um, you know just exploring because I think that the biggest thing that you come back to at least I come back to when I listen to classical music and the reason I enjoy listening to it still to this day is this sense of exploration you know I think that great songs they obviously there is some structure because ultimately we like familiarity in our lives but mm -hmm. um, this sense of exploration is also fun too when you kind of remove the confines of defining certain parts of the song and think more of in terms of like where could this go where yes. how can we continue to evolve because we've written songs i've written songs where i feel like the song is nothing more than just an evolution mm. throughout the entire movement ending with like a huge you know whether you call it a chorus or an outro or whatever so you know thematically i think that's fun too so it's mm -hmm. been you know integrating those two um visions of music has been fun mm -hmm. and interesting and revelatory because it helps us to push each other into different spaces that we didn't know existed. Yeah. You brought up a really interesting point that made me think about a lecture I attended a couple of months ago uh, where the, uh, the speaker was talking about uh, the difference between say pop music and classical music mm -hmm. and that in structure wise, very much on the same thing you're talking about where in a pop tune, uh, what are we after? There's a certain amount of repeti repetition, the hook, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the thing that always, you know, that gets that earworm in our heads that uh, stays with us. Yeah. Whereas on the classical side, what a composer does is starts with an idea and then sees how far they can vary it, change yeah. it. Uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's uh, uh, key, meter, timbre, you know, orchestration, what have you. And, uh, and, and that idea of what, 
uh, you're you're bringing up is that idea of like a lot of German leader being through composed. There were no repetitive elements. The composer wrote music specific to enhance the text at that time. And the one that I always to usually I used to teach all the time in my music appreciation classes was uh, Schubert's De Erlkönig, and mm. uh, and how in the piano part, it just beautifully supports uh, Goethe's poetry that he, you know, bases the, the song on. And so it sounds to me like you guys kind of very much in that same vein in terms of the way you're thinking. By the way, my wife and I are a great match as well, because I'm kind of the idea person and she's yeah. the organizational person. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's and, literally, you nailed it. Yeah. I manage everything for the Bergamot. Yeah. And I'm all organization all the time. I'm detail, micro, yeah. and he's big picture, visionary, like five, 10 years, 20 years down the line. He's always yeah. thinking of great ideas for yeah. that. I, I think <laughs> my big thing is it's like, I challenge anybody who believes that one, it's like one divinity, one divine masculine, better than feminine. It, it's any We're great so team, together. you look at it and you realize that it's actually the intermingling of the two that makes such great yeah. uh, teams. And, and it's so because- funny. We are all like, you know, we're all in this world incomplete and we're looking for songs and experiences and people. And by working together, we can complete and make each other more whole. And I think that that's a cool, mm -hmm. that's a cool way of, of, of approaching this idea that we all can help each other, help well, sure. others be better, and then also be helped along the way. And, and that's why I always refer to my spouse as my better half. Yes. <laughs> Smart yeah. man. He's yeah. A good man so, right there. so it works. It works well. But I know in, uh, she and I, we have a we have a, a musical duo called Brass and Ivory. I play trumpet. Oh she God. plays piano. And uh, and so we're we're getting ready for a three night starting tomorrow night uh, Christmas presentation that we're doing from our living room. Oh and my God. Uh, send us the information. Yeah. Well, there won't be anything to see. I'm not quite that advanced ah. what we're doing what we're doing we just cleared out our dining room and set up a stage inside we're in wisconsin and it's frigid here yeah. oh my gosh we just made it to chicago from out west we flew okay in well you know what it's i'm talking cold. about it's cold well anyway but I, I have a friend of mine who's a sound and lighting guy so he came over we're going to have uh, we've got everything mic'd and we're going to put the speakers out on our front porch. And oh then we've invited God. all of our neighbors and people all around. They could just come by, hang for as long as they can stand and listen to us uh, play music for the holidays. That is so cool. That's well, awesome. we hope so. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's our gift to our neighbors. Oh, and uh, we do little I concerts. I neighbor. Yeah. Well, we do little concerts in the summertime when it's warmer. We have a deck off the back of our condo that uh, when we first moved in here, I told my wife, I said, would you look at it? We're built into the side of a hill. It's a natural amphitheater. We're going to do little performances in our neighbors. And sure enough, they bring their lawn chairs and set up and we play. Love and, it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But anyway, what I was going to say is we work together much. Uh, she's, you know, she says, this is how we're going to set it up. And I just say, okay. Mm -hmm. you know what to do and she does and she's yeah. much smarter about that and you know and i and if you could if i could pan back and you could see my desk you'd know that being well organized is not my strong suit of course i always believe that people who are organized are really people who are just afraid to take time to look for things yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
But anyway, so we've talked about real great elements about uh, about each of you. And what I'm really and you kind of hinted at this already. So maybe we've already talked it enough. But let me just ask the question and see if there's anything else you want to add. What elements of musical experience do each of you individually singularly bring to the group that makes the two of you different than either of you as musicians? Yeah, That's kind of a complicated question, but I, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that one, I mean, when you just think about overall personality, lifestyle, these type of things. So I grew up playing acoustic guitar, loved acoustic guitar, fell in love with it, was playing like six to seven hours a day when I was a kid and, you know, and, um, and so that was just my mindset, always a kind of a math type person, um, loved when things like in music, when you could figure out how all the intermingled pieces could come together, where, whether it be in your, an ensemble and you play that piece for the first time and you see how everything interacts and it makes something beautiful or you're in a band and the same thing happens. Um, so that's kind of where I come from, from a musical standpoint. And that has made me into the type of musician that I am today. Um, even, you know, even in the records that we're making and the influences that we have and the classical influences that we talked about earlier. So that's kind of what I bring to the table. I'll let Jillian kind of say where she comes from. And I think that kind of paints who we are as individuals. And then you can see how through your own deductions, we fit together as a team. Yeah, that's a really cool question because I grew up singing in church. So I would sing solos and different things. Uh, And so the voice to me has always been the most important thing before I met him. I was just always focusing on the voice. How can I get more of a range? How can I deliver this with more emotion? All the details of the voice, Every, anything voice, I was all over it. All the background was all the harmonies. I love studying harmony and layering and melodies and anything that had to do with that. And so then when I met him, he was pretty much all focused in on the music, the musical dynamics, the elements going on, what's happening underneath. Oh, what's that bass line doing? What's the drums doing? Oh, there's another percussive element coming in from the left speaker. And it's very soft. And I, before I met him, I really didn't hear all of those elements. I learned Mm -hmm. this through him because I was so focused on all the harmonies and the layers and all that stuff. So when I met him, I realized, oh, wow, he's really, really into music. Like what's layered, what's happening. And that, that inspired me to learn about the music, the compositions, the melodies, counter melodies, all the things going off that was leading up. And then you'd layer it on the top with the main voice and then all the background harmonies and stuff. So then when we got together, I was like, hey, you know, I want to write this song. He plays all these instruments. I already created like the top line and all the different harmonies. So that's how we started writing in high school. And then I also was like, well, you know, you sing too, but I I was really heavily involved in trying to make my voice better. So that I think inspired him to study voice more and to make it more of a forefront of what he did. And then while he was studying the voice more and getting better at, at singing in his own way, I was getting better at that, but also I was learning instruments and trying to get my mind into, wow, okay, so I could write this top line melody, but then there's all these other melodies that you could be presenting within the musical side of it. So I grew a lot from knowing him and that side. 
And I would hope that you yeah. grew something. Yeah, the, I guess uh, the best way to put it in a very tight and succinct way was she was the star of our school band and I got kicked out of our school band. So that's <laughs> kind of how we, how we uh, work together really well. I know, uh, I know how to press all the buttons and she knows how to make them shine. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm curious to know then, uh, then when you write a song, how do you decide who's going to sing lead or who's going to sing backup? Yeah, we actually had a really great um, revelation about this. And it's been an evolution throughout our musical uh, journey. Um, I think in the beginning, it was kind of like we had started with this idea that Jillian was the lead singer and I was like, uh, you know, kind of her support. And this was something that, you know, I was totally cool with doing early on in my career because I sang, but I wasn't really that into it. Like she said, I was like, into Bob Dylan and even Pink Floyd, like the voice is there and it's cool, but it's a vibe and it's just there to get convey something. I'm not like, I don't listen to Andre Bocelli. I don't listen to, you know, uh, what I would consider to be like the best male Wait, vocalist. Wait, real quick, Andre Bocelli first. So when I was nine, I was given a gift card. It was my first gift card ever. I had never heard of a gift card. And the first thing I bought on CD was Andre Bocelli as yeah. a nine-year-old. So, so that gives a little can't background. say that I've ever been into classical voice, but um, so in the beginning, I thought we kind of worked together and it was like, oh, I'll just write these songs. I was writing most of the music and the lyrics. And then Jillian would sometimes contribute mostly to the melody and sometimes the lyrics as well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was a collaborative effort, but a lot of times Jillian would sing. But then I would do a couple cuts on the albums and it was getting a lot of like really good feedback um people and so and i think that the reason that it was wasn't because i had a voice that you know was technically more sound or anything like that i'm not going to compete on that front with jillian but i think that my voice does speak when i'm writing from a place of genuine authenticity that people can connect with in a way that sometimes when i would write the lyrics in the song and then jillian would sing it there was this kind of like disconnect from the lyrics and the meaning um, from where we were and where we were headed as musicians. And then we um, had a song that was uh, did really well for us off of our, not this album, but the previous album. Um, it was called Forget About Tomorrow. And I remembered in the studio working with the producer and, and I really didn't feel comfortable using my voice in the way that we used it in that song, which I look back now and I'm like, oh, like that was no big deal. But um I it just be kind of came part of me like that song was really 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 me and it was really really my message to share with the world and it just took off in a way that I mean when yeah. you were you know we were making music from South Bend Indiana at the time and you know just kind of like we had some small success but that song got placed in a the rock band game and so that kind of gave me the confidence to say hey I think it's important for me to continue to write from a place of authenticity and genuine. And when my voice can reflect that genuine emotion that's being conveyed, um, then I need to sing it. And so I just heard the, Be the Beatles in this new um, documentary that just came out recently. Um, and I remember um, the George Harrison conversation with John Lennon and um, Harrison had said, hey, you know, I wrote about 22 songs and he used to get about two cuts per album on the Beatles records. And um, so he was contemplating doing solo work. And so what I found was, was really interesting, and especially when you think about the Beatles, because you got really dynamic personalities and, and multiple frontmen within one band, which is very similar to Jillian mm -hmm. and I. 
um, in the way that we both have ability to hold a stage, but we want to share the stage. And that's the kind of the divine um, interweaving of the masculine and feminine. But um, so when we're deciding on who's going to be singing, it's not really a matter of like, do we think it should be this way or we think it will sell the most records this way? It's mostly just coming from a place of genuine. So it's like, if I write the song and I feel like this is my voice coming through. And a lot of times yeah. I have learned over the past 20 years of songwriting to really have my voice come through, then I usually sing it. And if it's a song that Jillian's written or a melody that she's written, I think about school notes off the previous album. Um, she had wrote that melody. I contributed mostly with the lyrics, but you know she wrote the lyrics as well and so but it was like that was her story to tell and so it just depends on yeah it's all about authenticity where does that line come so on the new upcoming record we do a lot of baton passing as we say so our record's going to drop in march 2022 so we're really excited about it and it was written in the desert during the beginning parts of COVID through now, we're just finishing it now. So over the last, you know, I don't know how many months, 23 months or whatever, but um, we were in a period where we're in the middle of the desert and we had been essentially dropped off there, so to say, because we were on a tour. We left our apartment in Brooklyn to do this tour in 2020 and then nobody knew it was going to happen. So we were in Austin, Texas when the world shut down with nowhere to go because we let go of our apartment, gave our furniture to other musicians. We're like, we're not going to be back for a year and a half. So we'll just get another one when we come back. And poof, that didn't happen. And we had uh, big supporters who love our music. They said, hey, we've got a house that's empty in Sedona. It's all yours. Go there, be safe there until, you know, we're going to sell it in the summer. So that's how we ended up in Arizona. And this album was written there. And what we realized from each of the songs is that, you know, certain songs, certain lyrics are resonating more with one of us presenting it. So how we look at it is when somebody's listening to the lyrics, what is the most authentic way we can get this out? And for the newest single that we just dropped last month, Burns, uh, he wrote the song, but we both sing on it. And it's this kind of dynamic love song about want longing to be with each other when you you can't be with someone and also like holding space for them when they're at their worst and saying, no, I'm not going to leave you, even though you might say, oh, you know, I'm in really bad shape here. Or I'm having a really bad day or a bad month or a bad year. And then and it ultimately ends in lovely days are here to stay, no matter what you say, essentially like this really sweet kind of sugary spin, a positive mm-hmm. outlook. But but he wrote that one and he starts it. And then we kind of go in and out together, like this conversation between, you know, us, a man and a woman in this song, you know, talking about this relationship and wanting to hold you, but being far away or distant or emotionally distant or whatever it is. And so we just look at the songs, we listen to them, we individually feel them. And we say, you know what, this song really goes well with your voice. I think that you need to take the lead on this or he'll listen to one and say, you know what? I really think this is all you like this. This isn't working be, for me. You know, and they can be really spirited conversations. You oh, know? Yeah. I mean, it can be, mm-hmm. it can be something that we disagree upon, but ultimately, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about when she's talking about, um, I think about this song, remember this December that um, I don't particularly love the song, but I do remember that the first time I played it for Jillian, she cried and she was like, oh I man, it. I really love this. We have to play this. And I was like, really? Like we have to play it. And she's like, yeah, yeah, we have to play it. So 
we've been playing it now for a couple of years and it's the opening of the of the Christmas album. And, and one of the reasons that I don't like it, and this is actually how I'm gonna, how it all kind of got flipped on its head was I felt like the lyrics were way too personal. Like it was way too just raw and like it was written in a very like emotional state of mind and so on and so forth. So fast forward now, you know, four or five years later, you know, Christmas a lot of times feels overly commercial. It feels like we're getting beat over the head with a, you know, uh, a capitalism stick. And a lot of people just, a lot of it is disingenuous. And, you know, a lot of it feels phony and kind of silly. And then last night we got a chance to play Remember This December. I feel like it came full circle. It's like the reason that I actually do like that song now is because it is so intensely personal and it is the true feelings that you have when things are tough and like, and what the holidays to me really means. And so I think that those deeply personal lyrics that we write um, through our journey as musicians, as we found an authentic way to get that message across, whether it be from my voice, the divine masculine speaking to the divine feminine mm -hmm. or reverse, however, that is most genuinely displayed mm -hmm. and most authentically given to the audience. It's been a revelation for us and um, how it's connected us with our fans because people, we all have that ability to sense well beyond what you're hearing, what's actually happening. If it's the truth, I guess. And ultimately last night, so it was our last Christmas concert of the season. It was a private event. It was really beautiful. And uh, going into that song, I always like to tell the story behind Remember This December. We, it was given to me in 2016 Christmas as, as a Christmas gift from him to me. And we had just finished touring to all 50 states, playing 264 shows in eight months, spreading a message mm -hmm. of unity during the most incredulous political year we've ever seen in our life. 2016 began what it what we see, what we know now. And um, we had no money to give each other presents. We had we had maxed out credit cards because our our touring vehicle kept breaking. We, it was, it was brutal. That year was brutal, but we knew we needed to go spread a message of unity and music and try and bring Americans together. And we, that's what our documentary is about. And we didn't have money for Christmas presents. So I woke up on Christmas and Nathaniel, he's like, he, he sang this song for me. And I just remember just sitting on the edge of the bed, just like weeping because when you listen to the song, it's remember this December, I love you, my dear. Remember this December, I love you, my dear. I know it's been a long year, but let me tell you this, just remember this December. And he talks about how he wants to, you know, he wants to say, I love you in a million different ways. And he talks about how, you know, even though he's broke, this is his gift to give. And it's just like, oh my gosh. So we played it last night and I tell the story in detail and just like, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And I think that people genuinely resonate when you, put your heart on the line when it makes you as an artist feel uncomfortable and you're dancing on the line of, wow, this is really uncomfortable for me to share this information. That's when I mm -hmm. feel like people resonate the most because people in the audience, they have been there. They have mm -hmm. had hard times. They have lost loved ones. Yeah. They have been broke. He called it. He made a joke. He said, this is a broke ass Christmas. And I said, we're people lucky have had that, uh, that, you know? Yeah. We're lucky that the song got named remember this December because the alternate uh, <laughs> title was a broke ass Christmas, but uh <laughs> 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 but you know people are humans right we're yep. we have struggle we have sadness christmas is a joyful time there's a lot of people that are struggling this year mm -hmm. they're 
financially have problems, they've lost their parents or their children, or maybe they have cancer. This is a difficult time for a lot of people. And when you show up in an authentic way and you say, this is our struggle, we're going to be honest about it. Other people genuinely relate. And that's where I think magic happens with music. That's where I think that vulnerability, the uncomfortableness, and then other people are saying, wow, this is authentic. The true meaning of Christmas isn't all this crap and all the presents it's love and, and that's you look what at, we have to give and, each and, other and going back through all the pop artists and things that we've you know the music culture which is that's a whole nother probably interview we could talk about <laughs> but the music culture in the united states is that you have all these pop, pop icons you have like 20 to 30 people writing you know for them they're all jockeying to get the cut or whatever and and i get that but at the same time like i grew up like when i listen to music i actually want to believe the artist I want to believe the fact that like, oh, like that artist that actually happened to them. Like, I kind of feel a little gypped when it's like, oh, you know, that turns out that that person does not live up anything to what those lyrics made you think they are. They're just kind of this like hollow embodiment of it because it sells. Um, so we really do believe in the fact that there's this genuine connection that happens when you're singing lyrics that you truly thought up of your mm -hmm. own, that represents some experience in your past and that people can connect to that past in a genuine way that actually makes them say, wow, this is a human being singing to me a song of human experience, as opposed to this is like a robot regurgitating something from somebody else because they know it's going to sell me this product, which is yeah. ultimately the mm -hmm. ticket or the, or the song or whatever. So we really believe in, in this genuine journey that we're on. It's not always brought us financial success. It's not always brought us critical acclaim, but it's brought us a lot of joy and a lot of um, authentic, genuine happiness. And I think that transfers to people when they listen and connect because they realize that they're not being duped. They're not being, you know, uh, yeah. sold something. They're just, we're just there to try and make their lives a little bit better, a little bit sweeter, a little bit, you know, push you along the way. And hopefully it's something uh, of value. Well, and you can look at yourselves in the mirror in the morning and know that you, uh, you're the real deal. Mm -hmm. That you're not you're not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes, you know. A lot of what you guys have been talking about really addresses a lot of the next few questions I was going to ask you. So I don't know if we need to go too too far with these, but I'm going to ask you, just in case we miss anything, because I like yeah. thoroughness. But how much do the songs change from your original conception when you first? Uh, complete writing them as yeah. compared to the end product that goes on the on a record. Yeah, I think that one of the great examples of that is like the song Young Again was written in a four hour session, five hour session. It's been our closer every night. We've played it hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, it really didn't go over like we didn't remake it at all until we got to London and we were working with Matt Wiggins, somebody that we had, uh, you know, um, had worked a lot with a lot of the bands that we really admire and look up to and just taking in his advice. And so, I mean, we just modified like the ending note of the chorus, like we were going, you know, we were extending it a little bit further and kind of tapering off the harmony. And he was like, why don't we just do like a tighter end? And it was like, oh yeah, as soon as we did that, it really changed. And so Young Again was an example of a song that went through very minor adjustments. And then we got into the studio and basically turned it into the recording that it is. Um, and then there's songs uh, on the album like uh, PDR, which was mm. kind of a song that started as like another song and then kind of amalgamated into like this newer song and then into this newer thing and then into this. And it just kind of- Well, did it start on piano? Was, it started on piano that? and it was kind of like 
a Bell and Sebastian, yeah. like really slow folk song. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of the inspiration. There was a song called 1976 that I really loved by Joshua Radin, I believe. And um, that was kind of the conceptual basis. And then it ended up being like something totally different. So sometimes the songs can go through this like extreme, extreme mm-hmm. makeover. And it's like, it literally is being made over until like the last word is sung and it's mixed. Um, and even then sometimes it can go through a little bit of a change if yeah. something sounds cool. So would you say that, would you say it's true that you would view the studio as a lab for experimentation, that you might bring the raw material, and then once you're in the studio, you've got uh, other ears, I assume, listening to what you're doing, commenting on what you're doing, uh, and then you've got other musicians you're collaborating with, and, and probably people saying, hey, what would you think if I did this instead of that, or we tried this? And so it's a it's a very much kind of a collaborative effort and you are your own production team. So you're really only answering to yourselves. But nonetheless, yeah. I have a sense that you are a couple that is open to other ideas from other people. When, yeah, and, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And that also could kind of, you know, bring some change in terms of the final product of, of something, like, you know. Uh, I, I mean, I, I like to work that way with my bands. I am not an authoritarian, except when I have the microphone in my hand, and then I take <laughs> yeah. charge. And yeah. Of course. <laughs> or, or when I put together the set list, I do that. But, you know, like when we rehearse uh, charts, you know, I, I, I always like to be open because, I you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be that. But uh, I think that sounds like a great way to work. And, and it really makes the music more creative. Anyway, mm-hmm. less product, more whatever the other with, uh, option would be process, more process, yeah. less yeah. product. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Totally. Um, you also have really hinted a lot about, about you, uh, authentic feelings and about authenticity and the message that you put across. And I, I always like to ask every singer songwriter uh, that I visit with, you know, about the, you know, the ancients, uh, Greeks and Romans used to talk about the purpose of tragedy in drama was to serve as an, an emotional cleansing, a catharsis for people watching the drama. You could experience the pain of Oedipus, for example, without actually having to go through what Oedipus has to go through, right? Or any other character in a, in a, in a tragedy. So when you write songs, do you write with the idea of, of providing an emotional catharsis for yourself as reflections of personal experience, which I think the answer, I already know the answer to that based on what you've already said, or are they songs constructed to elicit a catharsis for others? Mm-hmm. I, would, I would say right off the bat, when we're writing together and individually, we're writing from a soul space where whatever's happening either in our life or if we met someone, we've been inspired by other people on our journey on touring and all over the world and stories that we've heard or learned or or personally have felt. Um, But we both try to write from a very personal space, which ultimately allows for the listener, you know, wherever they're at in their life, they can jump onto that emotion. Mm-hmm. And they can say, oh, this relates to me at this point in my life when I went through this period that was difficult or was really joyful or was really, you know, challenging or tumultuous in this relationship or whatever it is. 
So I think ultimately when we're writing, we're writing from a, a soul space where it's coming forth. What, what is inside of us, what we're personally processing is coming forth in the song, into the framework together individually. And then people will take that for what it is as it happens. And they'll say, oh, this relates and, and they'll put their own spin on it. We've had people come up to us after listening to certain songs and say, you know, I just lost my best friend to suicide. This song really hit home for me. And, mm -hmm. and whether they know what the intention or why we wrote that song, that is that meaning for them, which is really cool because that's the point of music. It's we're really all helping each other, walk each other home. At the end of the day, we're writing pieces to help other people. And that's kind of my thought. Yeah, I think that um, mm -hmm. when I think about like the catharsis standpoint and, and whether it's like a catharsis for individually for myself or kind of constructing something so that somebody else can feel that sense of relief. I think of the song LA that has been one of our more popular songs that we've ever released um, from a critical standpoint, but also from a fan standpoint. And um, that is a very um, tangible story of uh, kind of attention and release. And I think that it's also very uh, relevant to what's happening out on the West Coast right now. I think that you know, that there's a, um, there's this feeling, well, how we introduced the song is, you know, there's no joy quite like seeing Los Angeles in your rearview mirror. And, um, and I think that that catharsis is shared um, through a lot of people. Um, we've received messages is almost like this rite of passage that when people are leaving LA for the last time, whether they're moving away or whatever it is, that they'll get on the plane listening to that song. And that there is this kind of feeling um, that people have through their experiences that you can either, either one, you've physically gone through it two you maybe could ethereally through reading the news or whatever, you could imagine what that experience would go through, or maybe you've even had friends that have gone out to LA to pursue their dreams or whatever. Um, and that's, so that's kind of like a, um, a point, uh, a story of which we can all read or look or listen and be able to have our own, um, examples and then there's songs like uh like ceasefire where it's a totally internal battle shared with people as a means for them to maybe relate to our personal story so um yeah so i think it, it just kind of it comes from both angles um i do find that the universality of telling a story um there's something amazing to that i mean when you think about there's a lot of great songs um, written by a lot of great songwriters um, that kind of share a very specific story. And so that is a catharsis for people in general. And, and so I do aspire to write to like, to, to do that more often, but um, LA was a good example of us doing it for the first time and really making a connection with people and, and it mm -hmm. being able to be this thing that existed beyond the song itself. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to talk about those kind of connections. Wednesday night, we had really severe winds mm. come through Wisconsin. And it was reported that the waves on Lake Superior were up to 35 feet high. Whoa. Wow. And of course, the first thing I thought about when I heard that was Gordon Lightfoot's uh, song about the Edmund Fitzgerald, which of yeah. course sank on Lake Superior in 1975. And uh, what a wonderful uh, story that is, a tragic story, but an, another wonderful story mm -hmm. that, uh, that he told. So it's, it's funny how different you know, you know, music is one of our seven intelligences. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how certain stimulus will just make us think in music. Yep. 
yeah. or you know recall a particular tune or yeah. maybe a certain any any it could be a certain smell sight mm -hmm. touch anything will make you think of a particular piece of music or it might even make you think of something new you know you might just have a melodic or a sense or whatever but uh you know I, I think these are all wonderful ideas. I would like to try to get now to more of the mechanics of your craft, uh, just because I'm always curious about that. So I want you to talk about your creative process. When you write a song, do you typically start with a melodic idea, a rhythmic idea, a particular set of chords, or do you go for a particular mood or emotion? Now, I know you've talked about wanting to tell stories, but do any of your songs ever start, say, before the story starts? Yeah, 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 for sure. hundred percent. So um, during quarantine, uh, I was writing a lot. I wrote like 42, 43 songs. Um, and so I was in the beginning experiencing, experimenting with like what my standard procedure is, is like, hey, pick up a guitar. Maybe I'm feeling a certain way. I'm going to fiddle around until I find something that's kind of speaking to that emotion, that feeling, and then kind of grow it from there. Um, that was maybe the more typical way. But what I found um, through reading other people's, um, you know, I, like David Burns, How Music Works. And I mean, a lot of music creation is basically made by whatever it is that you put in your hands. So if you put a bass in your hands, you're probably going to be writing like a really bass heavy song. And being that I'm a guitarist first, then a pianist, that, you know, the thing is, is that if I pick up a guitar, I have a certain tendency, whether it be good or bad, to float to a certain type of chord structure, or a certain movement. When I pick up a guitar or a bass where I'm not really in that guitar mindset, I might be thinking differently because with a bass, you're thinking almost melodically with a guitar, you're thinking rhythmically, you're thinking like accompaniment, you're thinking chords. So a lot of times it's just across the board. Sometimes it's like a drum beat. Um, I'll start with a drum beat and then I'll pick up the guitar first. Cause maybe I'm feeling like, I just want to like, you know, uh, I really want to write on the guitar or it'll be on the bass. And another thing, um, that I tried throughout quarantine and as well was starting with a story. Um, I want to write something about this and I want it to be a poem first. And then I want to grow. I want to try to really have the story and the, the melody be out there in the open. And then I want to compose underneath it because that uses like a totally different part of my brain to be able to kind of compose. That's actually interesting though, because I only write, I only write with the, melody and lyrics first and they come okay. to me at once so mm -hmm. that's interesting that that's something that he was trying to do more he's like my brain doesn't really work like that but my brain doesn't really work like how he normally does it where he sits down and he'll compose all the music first on the piano or on the guitar or whatever sometimes he'll pick up other mm -hmm. the bass or the drums and then he'll add on top of that but i don't really think like that at all I, mm -hmm. i'm all melody and then and you know lyrics first if you ever run out of inspiration i feel like and then i'll just pick up like a theory book and <laughs> which i would about, never do <laughs> think about you know whatever theory i might not be thinking about i might have in the back of my mind but you know, maybe there's a certain chord structure or certain, you know, that I haven't thought about in a while. And so maybe that'll be the starting point for some creative thing that I go down. I know a lot of uh, was experimenting over the last six months, a lot with diminished chords and how they can occur throughout the songs. Cause they, and, and so it was like, but that diminished thing was just brought up because I was reading the theory book. Cause I was bored writing and I was just like, 
oh yeah, diminished chords. And I played like a couple of progressions that were familiar. And I was like, oh, how did they use them? And then that began like a whole three month journey. So I feel mm-hmm. like there's never a shortage of things to start the writing process. It's just, it's the ass and seat theory. It's like, if I'm not sitting down writing, I'm, I'm not going to have any songs that I've written. It's a very simple thing of, th- of, of, of way of thinking, but it's very true in the way that if you sit down to write every day, you're going to write a lot. So Sometimes yeah. it's just when you're touring and doing all the other things, it's hard to get into the studio and do that, sure, but sure. it can happen from all, at least for me, it can happen from all realms and, and all, you know, different angles. This kind of goes back to your earlier question of like our differences, but I did want to mention this. So like in like an ethereal way, he would be more like a lion and I'd be more like a butterfly. So if he ever saw me like in a chair with a theory book out, you, he would probably call the doctor and be like, my <laughs> wife, like I took some theory classes in, in college, but I, I was a tutor. Yeah. I did not like that at all. I, I appreciated it for what it is. It's very mathematical to me. I, I am not like that. I'm more all soul, all feeling, all emotion. And so he tutored me luckily through that. But if you, if you literally walked in here and I'm like quietly, like looking through a theory book, you'd be like, what have you done with my wife? Well, you know, and again, this, this goes back to my wife and I, my wife is a PhD in music theory. Oh my gosh. And was taught theory and oral skills class piano, you know, the music major courses at the university, we both recently retired. And I'm more of a history and lit kind of guy. So, so where I'm a total klutz when it comes to like trying to analyze a piece of music, I sit down and watch my wife and she's just like, and she'll have the whole thing analyzed, picked apart. And her, her doctoral dissertation was amazing to me. She wrote, she wrote uh, her doctoral dissertation was on Arnold Schoenberg's uh, early songs and how she just picked apart the work and described this. And it, it's fascinating, but uh, it just, for me, just, you yeah. know, and yeah. I go every, we go together to a theory workshop every once a year. And, uh, and I go, because I always learn something, but uh, I feel like such a klutz being around all these other theorists who have just got such, you know, uh, anyway, but that's, you know, that's, what's nice. We're, we're like, you know, we're like peas and carrots. We go together yeah. and it's just, it's fantastic. And music, like getting back to the beginning of the conversation, music is not always brought into your mind intentionally. It's not always brought, it doesn't have to be, it can sometimes just be subliminal or it could be, you know, that you're not knowing yeah. you're taking in the music yeah. and you can still write beautiful music, not having yep. any understanding of theory. Yeah. It's just, I look at theory for me and my personal writing as like a crutch when um, you know, I'm looking to push myself into boundaries of where I haven't gone before, or if I'm falling into a certain vibe or feeling that I want to get out of theory really helps me to explore where I could go. And it would still make sense. Um, I guess I have a mathematical mind in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It works well, out. though. Well, it does. You know, like I said, it's a it's a it's a nice match. And I, you know, and we're we're very happy. So and I'm glad I can see that you are as well. You know, I've already talked a little bit about your Christmas album that was recorded live at the Acorn. And I will say again, I how much I enjoyed it. I would tell my listeners it is so worthwhile uh, to listen to. And one of the things I want to highlight that just really touched me was Jillian, when you did your a cappella version of Ave Maria, I personally thought that that was 
an especially gutsy move in a live performance to just, you know, sing without accompaniment and to sing a beautiful, popular classical piece. And, and you did it so beautifully. I would like it if you talk a little bit about your vocal style and your training and what models that inspired you, not just on Ave Maria, but in general, but that certainly I'm looking at that as the tip of the iceberg. Thank you. That I really appreciate that. Um, there's not many times where I feel sweaty palms before I do a piece or get nervous or my heart beats and races a little faster. But I can assure you that before I did that piece, my palms were sweaty and my heart was racing a little bit more than normal. Uh, it was that particular piece, acapella, was me dancing on the line. So I like to think in my head, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Well, in moments like that, as an artist, when you go out there and you're totally what I consider to be naked mm -hmm. artistically, yes. that's when I'm flying close to the sun and that's when I feel most alive. Okay. So I, I appreciate your kind words on that. That um, my influences vocally go all the way back to there's a woman, she passed away of cancer in the early 2000s. Her name's Eva Cassidy. And I, know that name. I love her. I grew up in my formative years. I found her on a soundtrack that was released, I think in like 2001. And I bought all of her CDs at Barnes and Noble when I was like a teenager in like 2004, five, six. Um, and I listened to her voice, which if, if you out there listeners have not heard of Eva Cassidy, do me a favor and go listen to her, type her in online. She has a voice of an angel. It is pure. It is uh, dynamic. Her range is incredible. And so I would listen to her for hours and I would sing, I would listen to her and then I would sing and then I'd record my voice on a little handheld recorder. And I'd listen back and then I'd be like, ah, no, that's not good. And then I'd redo it. I just would, for hours, I would do this. So while he was at his house practicing guitar for seven hours, I was at my house in high school, listening to Eva Cassidy and listening to her timbre. And so she really influenced me. I mean, I, to this day, I don't think I've ever in my life heard of a more pure voice in dynamic range than her. And so for this particular Christmas song, I kind of was thinking back to a lot of stuff that she taught me from listening to her. And I wanted to do this particular song acapella, the Ave Maria song acapella, because it's the true meaning of Christmas and how often in life, it's something that I wish I could hear more other artists do acapella renditions. It's so ancestral. It just, it, it takes you to a place that has happened for millennia, you know, the, the sheer voice alone, singing to a baby, a lullaby, or in your house, you know, you're in your kitchen, you're singing while you're making soup or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. there's something very ancestral about an acapella piece. And I do it every Christmas, whether it's Odd Lanzine or Ave Maria or, you know, last night I got a request um, for this private event. I did um, Eva Cassidy's rendition of oh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow acapella. And, you know, I, I got trained by a professor at my college who was a, a mezzo-soprano who performed at Carnegie Hall many times. And that changed my life because I thought my range was only, you know, between here and here. 
And this particular teacher said, no, I'm pretty sure you can go higher than that. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. And I was like, I don't know about that. And she's like, no, I believe you can do this. And she pushed me into uncomfortable places with my voice that really extended my voice into a much, much, much greater range that you can hear now on different pieces that we do together as the Bergamot. I'm getting ready to release some solo pieces. He's released a solo album under Nathaniel Paul, but I just love the voice. I love the emotion that can come through for me when I'm singing. It's, it's micro moment to micro moment when I'm in the song and I'm going through the passages and the melody and the, the all of the different lyrics it's all about emotion. It's all about dynamic. And when I'm singing it, it's from my soul and it's the best gift that I've got to give. So I give it all. And when I'm on stage, you get what you get, but that's a part of my soul that's going out there. And it's a joy for me to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful explanation. Thank well, you. I just, uh, again, I tell my listeners to check out that uh, live album. I thought it was uh, live at the Acorn. Yeah, and, uh, just a beautiful uh, something new, something different for Christmas, yeah. uh, which is what a lot of people are lo looking for. Well, I'm going to just uh, kind of wrap things up and, and ask you if there's anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about. I mean, new album in 2022 in right. March, a uh, documentary that we filmed. Uh, we've been editing for about five years. So, um, and the documentary is called State of the Unity. And it's that okay. tour that we did all 50 states in 2016, trying to show Americans that we can be more united than divided through the power of music, art, community, and collaboration. Ah, great. Things I all believe in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very We're good. excited. 2022. Here we come. Very it's good. The only and, documentary that we'll ever participate in. It was an unbelievable journey to do it and an unbelievable journey to edit it. But we're it very proud of it. work and we're very proud of it. And I would assume that there'll be uh, updated information about the new album and the documentary on your website. Exactly. Yeah. The Bergamot.com. Okay. Because I, I just, so you know, and just to remind my listeners, I always include the, uh, the Bergamot's website, your Facebook page, uh, yes. some samples from YouTube in my Perfect. show notes so they can learn more about you. That would so be I great. Think, I think that's great. And we also were constantly releasing singles on both Spotify, the Bergamot, um, and then on Apple Music, and we post almost every single day on our Instagram account in the stories. So you can kind of join us for our days and what's going on. And we're sharing a lot of music and fun behind the scenes stuff too. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, uh, listeners, definitely check out the Bergamot because uh, not only are they wonderful musicians, but as you've learned today, they're they're a couple of really great people. And Jillian so and Nathaniel, thank you for taking time to talk with me today and all the best with what I'm sure it will be a continued successful musical future. Thank you. It was thank our you. pleasure. Thank you for having us. You're an absolute joy. And we're looking forward to sharing this with our tribe as well. Stay oh. warm in Wisconsin. Uh, we're working on it. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Merry Have Christmas a, to you. And Merry Christmas to you. Thanks. Shine on. My discovery composer of the week is the French composer and pianist Cécile Chaminade, who was born in Paris in 1857 and died in Monte Carlo in 1944. While it is striking 
that nearly all of Chaminade's approximately 400 compositions were published. Even more striking is the sharp decline in her reputation as the 20th century progressed. This is partly attributable to modernism and a general disparagement of late Romantic French music, but it is also due to the socio-aesthetic conditions affecting women and their music. The third of four surviving children, Chaminade received her earliest musical instruction from her mother, a pianist and singer. Her first pieces date from the mid-1860s. Because of paternal opposition to her enrolling at the Paris Conservatoire, she studied privately with members of its faculty. In the early 1880s, Chaminade began to compose in earnest, and works such as the first piano trio, Opus 11 of 1880, and the Suite d'Orchestre, Opus 20 of 1881, were well received. She essayed an opera comique, La Savillante, which had a private performance in February of 1882. Other major works of the, dec of the decade were the Ballet Symphonique Calero, Opus 37, performed at Marseille in 1888, the popular Concertstück, Opus 40 for piano and orchestra, which was given its premiere in 1888, and Le Amazon, a symphonie dram dramatique given on the same day. After 1890, with the notable exception of the Concertino Opus 107, commissioned by the Conservatoire in 1902, and her only Piano Sonata Opus 21 of 1895, Chaminade composed mainly character pieces and songs. Though the narrower focus may have been due to financial, aesthetic, or discriminatory considerations, this music became very popular, especially in England and the United States. And Chaminade helped to promote sales through extensive concert tours. From 1892, she performed regularly in England and became a welcome guest of Queen Victoria and others. Meanwhile, enthusiasm grew in the U.S., largely through the many Chaminade clubs formed around 1900. And in autumn of 1908, she finally agreed to make a journey there. She appeared in 12 cities, from Boston to St. Louis. With the exception of the concert at Philadelphia's Academy of Music in early November, which featured the Concertstück, the program consisted of piano pieces and songs. The tour was a financial success. Critical evaluation, however, was mixed. 
Many reviews practiced a form of sexual aesthetics that was common in Chaminade's career and that of many women composers in the 19th and 20th centuries. Pieces deemed sweet and charming, especially the lyrical character pieces and songs, were criticized for being too feminine while works that emphasize thematic development, such as the Concertstück, were considered too virile or masculine and hence unsuited to the womanly nature of the composer, based also on assumptions about the relative value of large and small works, complex and simple style, and public and domestic music making. This critical framework was largely responsible for the decline in Chaminade's compositional reputation in the 20th century. Prestigious awards began to come her way, culminating in admission to the Légion d'Honneur in 1913, the first time it was granted to a female composer. Nonetheless, the award was belated and ironic, considering that she had been largely ignored in France for some 20 years. In August of 1901, Chaminade married Louis-Mathieu Carbonel, an elderly Marseille music publisher, in what may have been a platonic arrangement. He died in 1907, and she never remarried while her compositional activity eventually subsided because of World War I and deteriorating health. Chaminade made several recordings, many of them piano rolls between 1901 and 1914. Aeolian produced additional piano rolls of her works after the war, now with the improved technology of the duo art system. In later years, by which time she was feeling obsolete, she was tended by her niece, Antoinette Laurel, who attempted to promote Chaminade's music after her death in 1944. Chaminade was well aware of the social and personal difficulties facing a woman composer, and she suggested that perseverance and special circumstances were needed to overcome them. Her output is noteworthy among women composers for its quantity, its high percentage of published works, and for the fact that a large portion, notably piano works and songs, was apparently composed expressly for publication and its attendant sales. Chaminade composed almost 200 piano works and more than 125 songs. Stylistically, her music is tuneful and accessible, with memorable melodies, clear textures, and mildly chromatic harmonies. Emphasis on wit and color is typically French. Many works seem inspired by dance, for example, Scarf Dance and La Lissongera. Of her larger works, the one-movement Concertstück recalls aspects of Wagner and Liszt, while the three-movement piano sonata shows the formal and expressive experimentation that was typical of the genre by the late 19th century. 
The songs are idiomatic for the voice and well-suited expressively and poetically to the ambiance of the salon or the recital hall, the likely sites for such works. The concertino has remained a staple of the flute repertory. While it is a large-scale work and, th and thus represents a relatively small part of her output, the piece still provides a sense of the elegance and attractiveness of Chaminade's music. The All Music Guide lists 13 recordings of Chaminade's chamber works, 59 recordings of her vocal works, and 86 of her compositions for keyboard. In my show notes is a link to a 2015 performance on YouTube of Chaminade's Concertino for Flute, performed by Haley Miller, Flute, and the Boston Youth Orchestra, conducted by Benjamin Zander. That wraps episode number 70. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week, I'll be interviewing jazz vibraphonist, composer, and arranger Ben Galise. Other upcoming interviews will include with my colleague at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and jazz trumpet player Russ Johnson, jazz saxophonist Roxy Koss, jazz tenor saxophonist Tom Talich, and jazz trumpeter and educator Josh Lawrence. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.